And now, friends, would you please stand as you're able uh, for the reading of God's word from Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king of his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream. and My spirit is troubled to know the dream. They replied, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of uh, of your head as you lay before in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be moved or destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke it in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. All right. So today we're continuing our series in the book of Daniel, and we're looking at what it means to follow the biblical God in the city. At Res Pres, we like to say that we're a church that's for Urban and University Madison, and I want us to really double-click on what it means to be a church for Urban Madison, that if somebody came up to you on the street and says, you know, what does it mean for you to be a church that's for the city? I, I, I hope that over the course of our study in Daniel, we're, we're better able to put an answer to that question. And I think there's no better place for us to look at uh, what it looks like to follow God in the city than the book of Daniel. He gives us a great, a great picture of what that looks like. 
Last week, we said that uh, what it looks like to follow God in, his, in, in the city is not to withdraw or condemn the city, neither is it to go, go all in on the city and to assimilate to it, but rather to embody a, a posture of faithful presence, to be uh, loving the city of man for the sake of the city of God. And in our passage today, and man, thanks for your stamina, that's probably like the longest passage that was ever read in the history of Res Pres. Daniel shows us another facet, another dimension of what it looks like to follow God in the city and specifically what to do with anxiety. What to do with anxiety. You may have noticed this, but life in the city seems to come with this undercurrent of anxiety, this like low-grade, steady drip of anxiousness, anxious things about our, uh, about our performance and, and making it in the city, uh, anxiousness about our grades, anxiousness about our family and our kids doing well, anxiousness about our schedules, anxiousness about what's in the news and things we hear about crime and safety in our city. And every so often, those little anxieties begin to add up, and then they collide with the big existential anxieties that we all have. Why am I here? What's life all about? And when that happens, life seems to screech and just crawl to a halt. Have you ever felt that way? Uh, (laughs) A good example of this uh, cultural thing that that we've all experienced, actually, a good example is in the movie Barbie from this past summer. Uh, maybe you, you've seen the, the blockbuster, but Barbie is throwing this party for all her friends, and the music is going, everybody's dressed perfectly, dancing this perfect choreographed dance, and then all of a sudden, Barbie, you know, the music cuts out, and Barbie just says, do you ever think about death? <laughs> like, everything seems to be going well, and then, then the penny drops, the anxiety sets in, and the rest of the movie begins to kind of tumble from there, like, Barbie gets acne and she feels bloated and her heels touch the ground and and she starts to feel restless until she decides that she needs to address everything wrong that's going on, to to go on a quest to the real world in order to set things right. In Daniel chapter 2, we could say that this is sort of Nebuchadnezzar's Barbie moment, right? Everything is going well well with him and then he has this dream that robs him of sleep. The penny drops and he's filled with all of these anxious thoughts. He says, I'm troubled multiple times in our text and he wants to know how to move forward. And in the midst of all of these anxieties, Daniel comes with an interpretation of his dream. And I think that by looking at the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, we get, a, we get a window not just into Nebuchadnezzar's soul and the anxiety that he experiences, but I think it, it also acts as a mirror and shows us our own as well and what to do with our, with our anxiousness uh, and, and, our, and our fears and our worries and our sleepless nights. And so as we look at Nebuchadnezzar's dream, I want us to focus on two things. And these are the two things that are the points of emphasis in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We're going to look first at the statue and what it represents, and then secondly, we're going to look at the rock. So we're going to look at the statue, then we're going to look at the rock. So let's look first at the statue. The description of it is in verse 31, the start of that paragraph. It's this imposing colossus of, of gold, of silver, of bronze, of iron, of iron and clay, and uh, and now, the book of Daniel is prophetic literature, and the temptation with reading a, a book of prophecy like the book of Daniel is to fixate on what the gold represents or what, uh, connecting the dots between what the silver is and what kingdom uh, comes, uh, is, is, is that silver kingdom. And there's been a lot of ink that's been spilled uh, on this prophecy, and I'm happy to bore you with that information after the service, but what I want us to focus on in this dream and this statue is not the symbolism and maybe what these things point to, because I think there's a more obvious meaning to the dream. There, there, there's a more obvious reason why Nebuchadnezzar has lost sleep over, over this dream of the statue. And so I want us to focus on that, because the meaning of the dream is much, much more obvious. 
So why is Nebuchadnezzar freaking out? Well, he in essence knows what the dream means. And we'll learn, uh, we'll look at this a little bit more next week when we get to Daniel chapter three. But we're gonna see that the reason that he's so distraught is that Nebuchadnezzar has had this lifelong dream of building a statue to himself, a, a monument to his achievement and his success. He's become the most powerful, successful, wealthy, accomplished person in the history of the world at that moment. And you could argue, you know, in the greatest of all time list, Nebuchadnezzar could be in that conversation of, of those who have achieved the most uh, in, 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 a, in a human life, in human history. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he rose to power in Babylon and he had a dream and he accomplished his dream. But, but what terrifies Nebuchadnezzar with this dream is that his statue has feet of clay. It, it's fragile, it's brittle, it, it crumbles when a stone knocks into it. And it's, uh, and, and it's, while the statue is so big and awe-inspiring, it topples in a second and then it's gone with the wind. And you see Nebuchadnezzar, he has dreams of building a kingdom, of, of making a, a statue, a monument to his own accomplishment and achievements. But it was his kingdom he, he wants to build and establish this kingdom that, that he thinks is gold all the way down, that endures forever. But Daniel comes to him and says, no, your statue isn't gold all the way down. Just, just the head is gold. The feet, the feet are of clay. Uh, the, the, the foundation is brittle. What you, what you achieve isn't even going to last uh, at the end of the day. And when we think about life in the city, this is something that cities offer us. Cities offer us the power and the resources for us to make our dreams a reality. Uh, for us to, to realize our ambitions and our desires for success, uh, our, our impulse to be, to be significant or to, or to feel like we need to be somebody of substance. Cities give us the opportunity to fulfill those dreams and those ambitions. And if you think of a city like Madison, uh, your hopes of becoming somebody, whether that's through studying at the university or through finding financial stability through the strong job market here, through raising a healthy family because all the U.S. lists say Madison is one of the top places in the, in the country to raise your family, they can all become a reality here. And, and Madison may be your ultimate destination. You may have moved here and you plan on never leaving, but maybe some of you have, have dreams of going somewhere else and you think that by, by spending your time here in this city, it'll actually make you become the person that can be a person of substance in the next place you go to, the next city that you, try, that you decide to live in. See, cities give us, the, give us the resources to turn our dreams into realities. But what God is saying to Nebuchadnezzar and what he's saying to all of us is that if you build your greatness, if you build your life on anything other than me, you're going to be haunted with anxiety. You're going to be haunted with these kinds of dreams, these kinds of fears. You're going to be haunted with, with, with feet of clay. And friends, we see this play out in just a thousand different ways. If you build your life on popularity, you're always gonna be afraid and anxious about what people think of you. If you build your life on a relationship, you'll, you'll live in constant fear of being rejected by them. If you build your life on your academic record, you're gonna always be anxious about your grades. If you build your life on money, you're gonna be living in fear of what's happening in the market. If you build your life on beauty, you're gonna be afraid of the mirror at some point. If you build your life in your family, you're gonna continually hover and buzz around them and eventually smother them. See, whatever you're building your life on, God comes to you and says, you're going to be building a monument to yourself, but it's going to have feet of clay. It's gonna be fragile. It's gonna be brittle. You might be building a kingdom, but it's your kingdom. And anyone who has a dream of any kingdom other than my kingdom, God says, it's going to come down. And so the question for us, based on this dream and of the statue is, Whose kingdom are you building?
Whose greatness are you working to, to manifest? Whose glory are you working for? What, and what's your foundation? What's your motivation for doing what you're doing? It, and here's a reality. It's a little bit hard for, for all of us to accept, I think, but it, to some degree or another, we've all come to the city for the wrong reason. Uh, we all come to the city wanting to build our own kingdoms. Uh, even for those who follow Jesus, our motives are at best mixed. We say we follow Jesus, but if we're honest, uh, we can get caught up and engaged in, the, in our own kingdom-building projects just as much as our non-Christian friends and neighbors. And so a good, a good way for us to tell whether, uh, we've, whether, whether we've fully bought into this project of building our own kingdom is to, is to ask ourselves these questions. How do you sleep at night? Do you lose sleep over your job, over your career, uh, over your grades, over a relationship? Uh, do, you, do you have anxiety about losing these things? If, if it were threatened or lost, would, would it send you into a spiral of despair? You see, all of us have these kingdom-building projects that we want to do, even, even pastors. <laughs> even ministers have these ambitions of building their own kingdoms. So it's good for us to slow down and pause and ask ourselves, what foundation are we building on? Whose glory do we, do we really want to see made manifest in the world? Examine our foundations, because I think that's the point of the dream is that we have our ambitions, we have our ways of, of building the world in, in the, way that we, the way that we desire, but are we just building statues with feet of clay? And before we move on, let me just say one more thing about anxiety. Um, I mentioned that cities come preloaded with their own anxiety programs uh, that we absorb, and there's a lot of great literature out there from folks like Alan Noble or Jacques Ellul or, or others that argue that Western society isn't designed for us to be fully human, for us to be fully ourselves. Uh, but living in the city isn't the only place we come by anxiety. We live in a world that's fallen, that's not what it was meant to be. And because we live in a broken world, anxiety comes into our lives uninvited from all sorts of different angles, from our biology or from our family of, or from our family of origin or from the traumas that we experience or the ways that we've been sinned against. And so, in other words, not all anxiety is caused by our ambitions. It's not all it's not all caused by our desires. And so if you're here this afternoon and you're feeling anxious in ways that you just can't identify or put your finger on, uh, then uh, my invitation to you is, is, to ex is that there are ways where you can, ex can explore why that, why that may be. Uh, one of the benefits of living in the city is that there are more resources to deal with things that uh, deal with our mental health. And so if you're in a place of needing care in that kind of area, please talk to someone. Talk to me. Find me after the service. Uh, I'd love to connect you. Uh, with some of those resources to help you address your, your mental health. Uh, I'd love to talk with you more about it. Uh, but whether your anxiety is caused by the city or by your foundations or something else, there's one thing that, that this dream encourages us, encourages us all to do, and that's to look at the rock. And so as we look at the rock, Daniel shows us three things about the nature of this rock. And uh, from those three things, we can draw some applications about how to follow Jesus in our anxious city. The first thing that Daniel tells us about this rock comes to us in verse 34. He says uh, that this rock that crushes the statue, that breaks the image into dust, was cut out by no human hand. And he says the same thing in verse 45. And here's what that means. Uh, the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream was the product of human ingenuity, metallurgy, craftsmanship. But the rock uh, was not cut by human hands. It was a supernatural action. It was it was divine initiative. It was divine action. It's not the result of human ingenuity or human thinking or striving. It's supernatural. And because it's of supernatural origin, that's why it lasts. That's why it endures. 
The statue and the ambition it represents is finite and limited, but the rock and the kingdom that it represents is infinite and eternal. That's the first thing. The second thing that we notice about the rock it is, is that it's the least valuable substance in the whole dream. It, it's the most worthless material in the entire thing. Uh, you have gold, silver, bronze, iron, even iron mixed with clay, which takes some skill to combine, you would think. But the rock is the least valuable thing in the whole dream, and yet that is the thing that God chooses to describe the nature of his kingdom. Why? Well, because in the eyes of the world, the kingdom of God always looks unimpressive. It, the kingdom of God is always poor. It always looks weak and insignificant. It's never something that people in the world think highly of. But the kingdom of God, well, although it looks unimpressive, it's the only thing that remains standing in the end. That's the second thing, that, it's the le- that the stone's the least valuable. But the third thing that we learn about the rock is that it grows. The, this, there's this huge statue, and it comes down, not because it's, it's run into a mountain, but because a, a stone has hit it. And a stone doesn't take the statue's place immediately, uh, or the mountain, rather, doesn't take the statue's place immediately, but the rock grows and becomes a mountain that fills the whole world. And here's what that means, is that God's kingdom is a growing thing. It's a gradual thing. It comes, but it doesn't come in one fell swoop. It doesn't immediately wipe out evil and everything that's wrong with the world, but it comes in stages. It comes, but not not in its fullness. It grows. It's a slow growth but it's inevitable. It will happen. It will fill the the earth. And so Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that sometime in the future, that rock made without hands is going to come and break into the world. And when it comes, it's going to be unimpressive. It's going to look weak and foolish in the world's eyes. But the rock's coming is going to set in motion the renewal of the world. It's going to be the rock that slowly gradually, but inevitably crushes all the evil, the injustice, all the systems of the world that oppress and dehumanize people and become a kingdom that fills the whole earth. And friends, that's exactly what happens. Fast forward 600 years from Nebuchadnezzar and his dream, and something incredible happens, something supernatural, divine action takes place because God, the infinite, the eternal, the uncreated one, the only thing made without hands breaks into human history and his arrival, his entire life really is, an, is entirely unimpressive. Jesus comes onto the scene not as a king or a general on horseback ready to conquer kingdoms, but he comes born in a manger, born to an unwed mother on the margins of the Roman Empire. And the prophet Isaiah even goes so far as to say that, that Jesus had no form or majesty that we would admire him, no physical attractiveness that we would desire him. And while Jesus was not physically attractive, he lived a beautiful life, the most beautiful life that any individual has ever lived. And Jesus came not just with a beautiful life, but with a beautiful message that says that the kingdom of God is here and that this kingdom will grow much like a mustard seed, though it's the smallest of all seeds, becomes this tree that the birds of the air make their nest in. He says that the kingdom is like some yeast that works its way through a loaf of, through, through, through a piece of dough until, it's, until it permeates the entire thing. See, Jesus taught that that his kingdom had come and that it's going to grow gradually. And Jesus' life and teaching became a threat to the religious leaders. It filled them with anxiety. And instead of dealing with it in a healthy way, they, they, they decided to put Jesus to death. And they put Jesus to death in the most unimpressive way. He, Jesus died the most uh, torturous, anonymous, nondescript death that you could die in the first century, being hung on a cross. But as the Apostle Paul says, 
Christ died in dishonor. He, he, did, he died in anonymity, and, but he was raised in glory. See, Christ rose from the dead, and his resurrection is the declaration that God's kingdom will prevail, that it will fill the earth and break all the world's evil and injustice, including death itself, and will establish in its place a perfect kingdom of love, justice, righteousness, and truth that will last forever. Now, one of the most quoted verses in the, Old, in the New Testament from the Old Testament that's used is Psalm 118, 22, and it says this. It says, the rock that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The rock that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. See, Jesus is the rock of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He's the stone rejected by, by the world and who has become the cornerstone. He's become the foundation of God's everlasting kingdom. And if you build your life on him, if you build your life on that foundation, you'll never be ashamed. You'll never be put to shame. You won't be destroyed, but you'll endure and experience a whole new kind of life. And so, friends, are you building your life on that foundation this afternoon? Are you looking to build your own kingdom, or do you want to build your life on something, on someone that lasts? I said that looking at that rock teaches us three things, the rock in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but for those of us who are in Christ, here's how, here's how that rock helps us live life in the city today. Here, here are just three things that I think that are connected to the rock in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that help us follow Jesus in our anxious city. So if the first truth is that if anything lasts, it lasts because God does it. Uh, and so if you grasp that truth, do you, do you understand how freeing that is? You see, this city is charged with this undercurrent of anxiety and performance uh, to advance, to stand out, to be somebody of substance, uh, to, build, to build your statue uh, of gold to yourself. Uh, but the gospel comes to you and says that you're already golden. Because of Jesus, you're, you're already golden from, from, the, from your head to your toes. And if you already have that kind of approval and acceptance, do you see how, how liberating that is? That we can go to our work and then leave at the end of the day and not, and not be consumed by it because our work isn't ultimate. We can go and make money, but we can rest easy because we know at the end of the day that God is the one who provides for our needs. We can uh, even love our family and, and, and and not, and not smother them because we know that our kids, our, our children ultimately belong to God and we're just here to help them know that and to follow Jesus. You see, as, as Paul writes uh, in Philippians, that even like our spiritual growth isn't dependent upon us. In, in Philippians 1.6, Paul has this amazing line where he says, I'm sure of this, that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus so that we can have this practice of communing with God, of spending time with him in the word and prayer, but we can trust that even in that, God is the one who's growing us. And, and so we are, we're even free from the anxiousness of maintaining our spiritual life because we know that we're in God's hands and we're free just to enjoy him and follow him obediently. And so that, that's the first thing that, that should change. But secondly, we said that this rock is unimpressive, right? It was the least valuable substance in the dream. And in the same way, the kingdom of God often looks foolish and, un, and unimpressive to the world. Again, Paul, in, in the letter to the first Corinthians, he says that for those who crave power, the cross looks like foolishness. For those who prize wisdom, the cross is a stumbling block. But for those who are being saved, the cross is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And so the takeaway for us here is, are you willing to look a little bit foolish at times in the eyes of the world? Will you cherish and rest in God's approval of you, that in his sight you're already golden, you have that you, you already have his approval, or will you anxiously grasp for being liked by the crowd? Because if, if you remember that, that the most desirable suitor in the world, right, the, the person whose praise we most 
we most desire, that the person's, uh, the person's love that we, most, that, that we most want deep down, we already have, and because we already have it, it's like, it's like we have the sun and everybody else has candles. And so will, will you remember that? Will you remember that in Jesus, you have, you, have the, you have the approval and the love of the most praiseworthy and, and lovable person in the entire universe, in every universe. And so we can, we can just let the grip of, of approval and praise loosen up around our lives because we know that we have the only approval that matters. But then finally, the third thing that this rock teaches us is that the kingdom grows slowly, uh, that the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet what it will be. And so here's what that means for us. It means on the one hand, because the kingdom is not yet fully here, that means that we should reject uh, any sense that we have uh, towards triumphalism, that, that we've arrived, that, that our church is the correct church, that, our, that even our, our doctrine or our denomination is the correct doctrine and denomination, because when we do that, we, we actually turn our truth into a bludgeon, uh, to a, to a, to a bludgeon and, we, and we beat people with it, rather than being uh, people who, who love and serve and lay down our rights for the sake of others. And if you're here and you're following Jesus, but you haven't committed to a church because you're looking for that perfect church, well, newsflash, that perfect church isn't going to arrive until Jesus comes back. And Res Pres isn't that perfect church, but I pray by God's grace we strive to be a church that, that follows Jesus faithfully, that even owns up and repents of the ways that we have done, uh, done wrong in the past, and that uh, by God's grace that we can commit to be a church uh, that, that lives for others, for our city. And if you're waiting for the perfect church, your faith is going to wither before that happens. And so my, my encouragement to you is to find a church and commit to it. If it's Res Pres, great. If not, I'd love, to, I'd love to point you to another church in our area for you to get connected to. But commit to a church and see what God does in you and through you from there. So some of you needed to hear that not yetness part of the kingdom. But I think, on the other hand, some of you need to be reminded of the alreadiness of the kingdom. Because the kingdom is already here, because it's already broken into the world, that means you have the power and the ability in this present moment, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to live differently now that to follow Jesus right now in the present. You see, each week we confess our sins corporately and then silently, and maybe during that silent confession you've confessed a sin that last week you swore you would never do again, and yet a week later here, here you are. Uh, if, if you're feeling shame over that, it might be because you're not, you're not grasping the alreadiness of the kingdom. Because Christ has died and rose for you and has power uh, over, over sin and the grave, that means you have the power in Christ to see, to see those besetting sins diminish or even disappear over time. But you must remember and lay hold of Christ's promise that the kingdom is already here. One of my favorite passages outside of the Bible is, is in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And it's in his chapter on, on sex where he talks about uh, in our pursuit of Christ-likeness that failure is part of the process. Uh, because it's in failure that, that we're cured of our illusions about ourselves and it teaches us to depend more fully upon God. He writes that we learn on the one hand that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments and on the other that we need not despair even in our worst for our failures are forgiven. The only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. You are not what you will be but you will also not remain where you are. Why? because the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, because Christ is risen, because the power to follow Jesus is available to us now by the Holy Spirit, and if we build our lives on him, 
will never be ashamed. In an anxious city, in an anxious world, we have an opportunity to show people the stable, the unchanging, the eternal rock, and point others to them as well, to him as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who uh, has entered into our anxiousness, who has an- entered into our striving, and has given us peace, who has given us uh, forgiveness, and Lord, help us to build our lives on you, the rock. The old hymn comes to mind that on Christ the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Lord, we pray that you would help us by, the, by your Holy Spirit to examine our foundations, to move our lives off of the sand of building monuments to ourself, of building our own kingdoms, and look to you, Jesus, to build our lives on you because we know that building our lives on Christ will never put us to shame. Help us to do that, Lord, we pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen.